we're in Judges 16. We're finishing up the Samson cycle. And we've seen how Samson is a microcosm of Israel. Like Samson kind of like symbolize, not symbolizes, but his life mirrors Israel in, in microcosm. Uh, he just, and it's going to be made clear in this chapter yet again, but like Israel, he was uh, specially birthed by God, you know, brought forth by God with all the promise and all the blessing and all everything he needed, and yet he continues to turn away from God over and over and over again. His whole life is one of disobedience. And all of Samson's focus in his life is on himself rather than on God. And he only acknowledges God, we saw in the last chapter, at the very end after just because he was thirsty, is finally he cried out to God. Um, <clears throat> so, so we're going to see that in this chapter as well, kind of the second half of Samson's life, because his life's broken up into two parts. And they're both framed by <clears throat> his impulsiveness and his penchant for foreign women. Those are the two things he's known for. And they are both of those themes are brought out in this chapter as well. <clears throat> but the point is with Samson here, what we have is someone who's been turned into a folk hero throughout most of history and a biblical superhero. I remember as a kid, they made a movie, Samson versus Hercules, back when Steve Reeves was Hercules and Samson was some muscle-bound uh, Hebrew-looking dude. And uh, I remember one scene, Samson was like throwing spears with two hands and like spearing all these armies, troops, and everything. And like people just come up with, they try to do with Samson what the Greeks did with Hercules, which is make him this larger than life figure and make him into a superhero. And the problem with that, as we've seen in the book of Judges, is the narrator doesn't do that in Judges. God is active in Samson's life, but he's certainly not the main player in Samson's life. God comes in and it's almost like Samson does everything uh, wrong, and yet God still continues to somehow in some way get his will accomplished through Samson's own impetuous sinfulness. And that's something to keep in mind because it's not just Samson, that's the pattern we've seen in the judges. We've seen that God continues, even as Israel just careens down the hill of moral degradation into full Canaanite um, uh, paganism, that God still <clears throat> hasn't let them go completely. He lets them experience the results of their sinful decisions, but He never completely abandons them entirely. And that's because He made a promise to their ancestor way back in Genesis that through that seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So whatever God's going to do in the history of His people, it's going to involve His people. And even if a generation is sinful, as we saw in the Exodus generation, God will still, He may punish that generation, and that generation may die and be separated from God's promises and, and utterly destroyed. <clears throat> but the promise will continue through the faithful remnant that exists within that generation, that always exists in the generation of God's people. And the promise will continue. It'll, it'll kind of go into hibernation for a while. Uh, but it will continue to pop back up in the lives of faithful people throughout the generations as God's doing His plan uh, at a large scale. And so when <clears throat> we're in the judges, we see that with the judges. In particular, the first judge, Othniel, contrasted with the last judge, Samson. They're almost polar opposites. Everything from their treatment of women to their success in battle uh, to who they credit for the battle and to whether they delivered Israel or not. And Samson is never said to have delivered Israel. Even his birth announcement said he will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But the 20 years that he ruled, he never actually delivers Israel 
from the Philistines. He only does these little um, annoyances or attacks on the Philistines, antagonism against the Philistines throughout his life. He's almost a more of a trickster than a, a superhero. And, and that's kind of how his life has been. But in the second half, at the end of his life, we're going to see <clears throat> how this plays out. Chapter 16, there's this one little episode first. So Samson's already, remember, he's already had one liaison with a Philistine woman. And it didn't go well. She tricked him into revealing his secret, which then ended up uh, creating almost this family blood feud uh, on his wedding day or during his wedding celebration. And, and 30 people ended up dying. And, and it was just this massive, we saw that uh, two weeks ago, was this massive escalation. And so you'd think that he would have learned his lesson from this woman, this Philistine woman at Timnah, who he saw and wanted to be with. But Samson does not learn lessons in his life. That's one of the things in his life we're going to see. He does not learn lessons. He's as hard-headed as he is strong. And uh, that's frequently the case with big tough dudes that are meatheads. Uh, and Samson is the epitome of that. <laughs> so, verse uh, 1, chapter 16, one day Samson went to Gaza. Pause. Samson's living up in the, uh, between Judah and Dan. And he goes to Gaza, which is all the way down south. He sh there's no reason for Samson to go to Gaza. It's the heart of Philistine country. It's as far away from the people of God you can get and still be within the general Holy Land area. But that's where he goes. And not only does he go down there for some unknown reason, it says he went to Gaza where he saw... There's that word again. Samson's life is dominated by what he sees and what he wants. And once again, he saw a prostitute. A zona in Hebrew. A, 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 prost a woman who has sex for money. Prostitute. <laughs> uh, he went in to spend the night with her. Self-evident. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. So, <clears throat> just like with the spies that went into the, uh, Rahab's house back in Jericho, uh, this has echoes of that. He goes in, and, he, and, and the, typically how prostitution worked, there would be a house that would be where the prostitutes lived. Sometimes there would be many of them, sometimes there would just be one. But you'd go in, you'd spend the night, all night, you get up in the morning and you leave. Kind of how it worked. And so when they heard Samson's in town, <clears throat> then they surrounded either her house or, or the city within the city and shut the gates to kind of lock him in and to wait. So they're going to get him in the morning. When he goes to leave, the gates are locked. He can't get out. He's trapped in the city. And then they can all attack him. So that's the plan. And remember, the city gates weren't not, it wasn't like just the gate on your front fence. The gates of the city were the capital of the city. They were where the, all the judicial action took place. They were guard houses built into the city gates. It was a massive complex. Almost think of like a medieval castle and the portcullis and then the walkway and then the archers on each side. And then, then if you get in, then you're inside. Much more like that. So it's a very formidable, very imposing thing, not just like a fence post. So they lay in wait. <clears throat> uh, they made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. So they lay down. They, all right, we're going to chill here until morning. When he gets up, then we'll kill him in the morning. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all, the bar that holds the gates shut. He lifted them onto his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So Samson 
literally possessed the gates of his enemies. And that is a Hebrew idiom that means victory. And it, it, it means like military, uh, complete victory over another people group. To possess the gates of your enemy is, a, is an idiomatic way of saying to own your enemy entirely. If you possess the gates, you run the city. It would be like saying possess the, uh, taking possession of the White House or Capitol building or something like that. It means you are now in control. Well, Samson doesn't figuratively do that. He literally possesses the gates of his enemies. And he takes them and he doesn't do anything with it. He doesn't deliver Israel. He doesn't attack the Philistines. He doesn't muster Israel to come fight them now that he has symbolic control. No, he just takes the gates and leaves. He gets away. Now, he does it, and there's a little bit of question in the text. Where does he put the gates? Because it says he uh, carried them to the top of the hill. And in Hebrew, it says across from Hebron or opposite Hebron. And the NIV makes it seem like it's the hill facing Hebron in Gaza or around Gaza. But uh, it could also be a hill in Hebron, facing Hebron, away from Gaza. The thing is, that's a 40-mile trip. So that's like a marathon and almost two marathons worth of distance carrying this massive gate thing (laughs) on your shoulder. So again, if Samson got all the way to Hebron, he took the gates of his enemies and deposited it in the heart of biblical Judea which would have been a very symbolic thing, but then he didn't do anything with it. That would have been the rallying point to call the troops out and to throw off the yoke of the Philistines. But as we've seen, Israel is quite comfortable being ruled by the Philistines. Remember, they turned in Samson last chapter because he was threatening their Philistines being cool with them. So anyway, all of this, it's, it's like Samson's life in miniature, this three little verses, because he has this incredible strength this incredibly debauched sexual appetite. He's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to be doing any of this. He's supposed to be set apart for God from birth. Yet he goes into the heart of Philistine country. He's supposed to be apart, and yet he goes right into everything about Samson's life is a failure in terms of his religious and his faith life. But yet he's able to do, because of the gifts and the strengths that he's been given, he's able to do incredible things that nobody else could do. It's his paradox. And so in this, this section sets us up for thinking, okay, now he's going to stop fooling around. He's sown his wild oats. He's grown up. He's now possessed the gates of his enemies. So every reader would have been like, all right, now it's time. Throw off the yoke of the Philistines. Rally the troops. You know, make it happen. So this is the perfect moment for Samson to finally redeem himself and be the judge of Israel that God set him apart before his birth to be. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. We go from his massive victory to, and here we go again, another foreign woman. Valley of Sorek, on the way to Philistine country, towards the coast, not in the heart of Israel, not quite in Philistine territory fully, but basically the Philistines were ruling at this time. So there's question of whether Delilah is Philistine or Israelite. We don't know. Her name's not really an Israelite name. It kind of sounds like the word for night, um, which is Lila in Hebrew, but it also comes from an Arabic word, possibly has an Arabic cognate, which means flirtatious. So we don't really know her identity. We do know she was flirtatious, or at least she caught his eye, and we do know that she's going to act in the night for his downfall. But other than that, we don't know anything about Delilah. The text never says that she loved him. It says he loved her. 
And so instead of rallying the troops and leading Israel and delivering them from the Philistines as would be fitting at the end of the book of Judges, Samson doesn't do any of that. He fell in love with a woman named Delilah in the Valley of Sorek. The, ruler of the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So they go to her again. This is Timnah 2.0. Only the woman in Timnah, they went with threats. Hey, get the secret or we're going to kill you and your father. And they ended up killing him and her and her father anyway. Now they go to her and they entice her with an astronomical amount of money. 1,100 shekels of silver from each of the five rulers. So 5,500 shekels of silver. Remember Gideon's defeat of the Midianite kings and and the the booty that he collected from that battle was only like 1,300 pieces of uh, shekels of silver or something like that. Uh, it, it wasn't a massive, or 1700 I think, something like that. So this is an exorbitant amount. This would be like somebody coming and offering millions of dollars. All right? A, a, a full-grown servant, uh, the Ebed, a Hebrew slave servant, uh, went for the redemption price in the Old Testament was 30 shekels of silver. So this tells you in terms of 30 is the value of one human life for redemption purposes, 5500 is what she's getting. So it's a massive amount. It's not like, they, not like Judas and Jesus where they're like, hey, 30 pieces of silver. No, this is like, hey, here's a check for $20 million if you just turn this guy in. Okay? And for a peasant person in the ancient Near East, it's an incredible amount. It's a kingly fortune. It's so great a, a, an amount that some scholars who are critical are like, well, no, that can't be right. This has to have been made up <laughs> because of the amount of money that they offer. Um, but really, it shows just how desperate they were. Samson had, remember last week we saw, he had destroyed their crops. He had, he had murdered thousands of, of Philistines, and, and their entire food source for a year had been completely decimated by him and his fox stunt, his Firefox uh, stunt that he pulled. So now we see just how bad they want him taken out. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with, and this is a funny note, I'm just going to make it, translations change, we've seen, and I'm reading from the NIV, which came out in 1984. Some of you, if you have an NIV or if you're on your phone, the new NIV, it'll read differently because the NIV that came out in 1984 says, Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs. Now, thong doesn't mean today what it meant in 1984. So the NIV today changed it to seven fresh bowstrings, which is the correct translation. Because a thong used to mean a cord of some type, but this is one of the reasons why Bible translations get updated. The Bible word didn't change. English usage changed. And in 1984, if you said thong, people wouldn't look at you weird. Today, they're going to look at you like, why is she tying him up with lingerie? It wasn't lingerie. It was bowstrings. A bowstring is the tendon or, or the uh, ligament, the t- or not the, t- um, the sinew of an animal. And it would be removed and it would be stretched and it would be laid out to dry and then it would be pulled and, and that would be the bowstring that was made in the ancient world. Samson says, if anyone ties me up with seven fresh bowstrings, a fresh bowstring is an animal tendon. 
An animal tendon is a piece of a carcass. Samson is the Nazarite. He is not to touch a carcass. We've already seen him flaunt that vow with the lion. We've seen him flaunt it with the jawbone. Now, once again, even in his little joking trickstery, it's like he just completely doesn't take his Nazarite set apartness seriously. Once again, and this is a pattern in his life. But he makes up this thing. If anyone ties me with seven uh, fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and, tied, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come on now, tell me, uh, tell me how you can be tied. So he says, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. We've already seen him try this a couple of chapters ago when they went to turn him in and he snapped the ropes and killed a thousand people with a jawbone. So again, Samson is just playing with her, not realizing what's happening. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, if you weave the seven dreads, and it should be dreads, it says braids in some translations, but it's the word for dreadlocks. Samson had seven thick dreadlocks. Now we see how he could go his whole life without having his hair cut. He had big, long, thick dreads. So he said, if you weave the seven dreads of my head into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven dreads of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Literally in Hebrew it says, and thrust through with the pin. And that's the same word used when Jael thrust through the tent peg into Sisera's head. So it's an illusion. Once again, we have a mighty man asleep, a woman, and something thrusts through his head that will end up, not this turn, but next time at least, resulting in his death. But it's kind of this illusion back to the previous story, at least in the vocabulary. So we see that Delilah's intentions are not just playful. Now, we already knew that, but Samson should know that. And at this point, he should realize it. Does he? No, because he is stupid, very stupid. <clears throat> Then she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin in the loom with the fabric. Just ripped it all out like it was nothing. And looms are pretty big deals. It's not like a little thing in your pocket. It's a whole setup. This was an elaborate thing. And he was a heavy sleeper. So uh, then she said to him, how can you, here it is. She's going to play the love card. How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. And that's actually literally what the Hebrew says, tired to death. It's foreshadowing because he is going to die. And it's going to be through this whole series of events. But as if he didn't got it the first three times, now she throws in the, hey, if you really love me, how many people's downfalls have come from that, that request? If you really love me. How many people have used that to get what they want? Whether it's women using it to manipulate a man to do something for them. Whether it's men using that line to manipulate a woman to have sex with them. How many times have the, if you really love me, you would dot, dot, dot. 
It's a common refrain. So here again, we see in the Samson story, like we've said before, there aren't any good guys. Samson's not a good guy. The Philistines aren't good guys. Delilah's not a good guy. There are no good guys in the Samson story except God. And he's the one who's silent throughout this whole thing. So she pulls out the Honey If You Love Me card. And he bites, hook, line, and sinker. So he told her everything. Literally in Hebrew it says all of his heart. Verse 17. It says, No razor has ever been used on my head because I've been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Now here's the point. We don't know exactly if this is true or if Samson's is just playing with her again. Uh, he may be telling her the truth. He may be finally bearing it all. Or he may genuinely believe that it's his hair that's preserved his strength. But what the text is going to make clear is it's not necessarily the hair. The hair was the symbol of the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was God being with someone in a special set-apart way. So his strength, even Samson's not exactly correct. It's not his hair that's the, the source of the strength. Ultimately, the hair is the symbol the source of the strength is God and God's presence with him. Because he's already broken his Nazarite vow so many times. That's what the thing that, that puzzles interpreters when they read this. They're like, wait, the hair part of the Nazarite vow was kind of the least important part. The no drinking, no touching anything unclean and dead. Those were the major parts of the Nazarite vow. And Samson's flaunted those his whole life. But it's almost as if he said, ah, but as long as I don't shave my hair, everything's good. I can bend the other rules. So there's this, you know, this kind of religiosity to Samson and his Nazarite vow. You see it a lot of times in different ways. People are kind of have the well, as long as I don't do this, I can do everything else that runs counter to God's will. As long as I go to church on Sunday, I can live like hell on Saturday night. As long as I give my tithe, sow my seed and any of that other nonsense that people that teach the prosperity gospel believe, as long as I just give my seed offering, I can do whatever I want with the rest of my money. You know, as long as I go to confessional once a month, if you're Catholic, I can order mafia hits and shake people down and do everything else the Godfather did on the other days of the week. It's this tendency that humans have to, as long as I appease the God with this action that I'm investing significance in, all my other actions don't really matter. And that's exactly how Samson has lived his life. And God has graciously put up with him for these 20 years. And that's going to come to an end very soon through Samson's own decisions. But he tells her, so he finally tells her the Nazarite vow. That's the key. And that is symbolized by the shaving of my head. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more. He's told me everything. So she nagged him for a while after the three times. They, all, they probably went away like, hey, we're not going to hide again. He's just going to keep messing with you. So they leave. So now when she finally, oh, I've got it. This is the real thing. So she calls him back because she still wants that 5,500. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven dreads of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. That word subdue him is also the word for humiliate. And some translations have it, and so began to humiliate him. Uh, which is exactly what she does. Just as he was going to begin to subdue the Philistines. And his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. 
He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. You see the parallel? His strength had left him. The Lord had left him. The Lord is his strength. That's the key. Samson didn't have big guns. He didn't use the gym, the weight room. He wasn't a naturally powerful man. The Lord was his. We don't even know if he was big. All the movies, he's this big, ripped, Schwarzenegger-looking guy. We don't know that. The text gives no indication of that. We just know that he had this incredible strength. But that strength was because the Lord was with him, even through all of his foolishness. But at this point, the Lord says, that's it. The last of the vows, the last vestige, the last thread of the vow that you were somewhat trying to keep, you've just given up. So, see you later. That's what it looks like. Samson is about to be taken into exile, just like Israel. Isaiah 7, when it talked about the destruction Assyria would bring on Israel, it said specifically, like a razor being shaved over the head and the beard is what the people are going to be like when the Assyrians come. It likened being taken into captivity with being shaved in a humiliating way. There were no clean-shaven Israelite men. They all had beards. That was a sign of their manhood and their standing before God. And so to have that shaved is humiliating. Uh, That's why every Bible movie you ever see where they have a clean shave is just completely wrong. They all have big bushy beards. Um, Every Samson movie I've seen, he doesn't have a beard. He's like clean shaven. It's really silly. So, verse 21, Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, where he just was. He was just in Gaza. He just lifted the gates. He just possessed the gates of his enemy in Gaza. Now he goes back to Gaza, not as a conquering judge, but as a blind, weak captive. His eyes, the things that had led him into trouble his entire life, now are taken from him. And now that he can't see anything is when he's going to finally at least get a vestige of maybe there's a turning point. Now that his eyes have been taken and his strength have been taken, he's hit rock bottom. Maybe he'll turn to God. Maybe. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shekels, no ropes, bronze shackles, sorry. Um, They set him to grinding in the prison. Again, in the movies, it's this big wheel and he's pushing it around. No. No, Philistine grinding houses were just places where there were these little millstones sitting around and slaves and women were sent to sit down by the millstone and grind flour and grain all day. So all day he's sitting there grinding, grinding. They're bringing it in. He's grinding it. It's menial work. It's not this big pushing a mighty thing around in a circle like you see in the movies. They've excavated Philistine grinding houses. He just sent him to do menial tasks. The man who was the, the, the symbol of virility, manhood, sexual conquest, physical strength, now is basically in the role of a slave captive girl. In fact, when women would be taken captive many times as a symbol of, hey, you are, your whole life is left behind, they would do what? Remember what Exodus says? They would shave their head as a symbol of submission and mourning. So everything about Samson has been flipped on its head. And he is now in the complete opposite position of how he carried himself, how he pictured himself, or at least how he presented himself. The lowest of the low, rock bottom. 
So it's all is lost. Verse 22, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Just like Israel. They're in captivity. All is lost. God has divorced them, Jeremiah says. They've been carted off into exile, Ezekiel says. Isaiah pictures them sitting in exile with no hope, with nothing. They've been completely humiliated, completely brought down by their own sin, by their own idolatry, by their own immorality. And yet, the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And yet, God is going to bring them out of that captivity after it's over. So, Samson's life once again mirrors the life of Israel in the future as a whole. And just like God won't leave Israel, God won't leave Samson. Why? Because he likes Samson? No, not especially. Because Samson deserves it? Nope. Because Samson learned his lesson and now it's all okay? No. No, Samson's still going to die. But God made a promise to Israel about those who oppressed them and cursed them and, and came against them that God would fight those people as well. And the Philistines are doing that. So God is not going to allow the Philistines to have complete victory, even though He does allow His last of the judges to go down in defeat. So, Finishing, now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. So they're cheering, crying out to their God, Dagon, God of the harvest, the harvest that Samson had destroyed. Dagon, in the Ugaritic writings that we have, we learn that Dagon was one, Dagon was one of the... The word Dagon in Hebrew just means grain. I mean, literally just means grain. And Dagon was the god of grain. He was the god that supplied their agriculture. He was the, uh, the father of Baal. So the neighboring Canaanites that worship Baal, the Philistines worship Baal's daddy, Dagon. So the grain god, Dagon, they finally brought Samson who destroyed their grain and who killed all their people. He's been brought to justice. So they are partying. Verse 25, while they were high in spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. We don't know what he performed. It probably wasn't feats of strength um, because they don't even know that his strength is returned. But just basically bring him out and let's make a mockery of him. Which is what you do to captives. The Babylonians told the Israelites in captivity, hey, sing us a song. And the Israelites said, how can we sing when we're at captivity? And the psalm, that's when the psalm that was written, blessed are him who dashes your little one's heads against the rocks, and all the really nasty and precatory psalms, that's when they were written, or at least when they were sung. So they're mocking him, they're jeering him, uh, and they're doing it all to the glory of Dagon, their God. While they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to a servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Like a little amphitheater almost. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. Here it is. Samson's confession, his acknowledgement of God's power, his hopelessness, his weakness. That's what we expect. And we are sorely disappointed because look what he prays. It's the most self-centered prayer of all the judges. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O Sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. That's his prayer. 
Lord, let me just get it one more time. And it's a misleading prayer. It's a dishonest prayer. With one blow for my two eyes. No, not one blow. 3,000 blows. All these people are going to die. So Samson's not even being honest with this prayer. At the end, he's still focused on vengeance. The Philistine justice of vengeance. Just like he was in the previous chapter with that whole ordeal. But he is still... Samson has been, God is with him, his strength has returned. And God is going to judge the Philistines. God doesn't hold them innocent. And they are going to be judged in their reveling, in their idolatry, in their mockery of Israel. So here it is. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Terrible prayer for a Nazarite to pray. He's supposed to be set apart. He's supposed to be, his whole life was supposed to be apart to God, and yet his whole life was lived with the Philistines. So it's fitting. Let me die the way I lived. It's the only request for let me die in the Old Testament that God actually grants. Every other person that says, oh, take my life, let me die, curse the day I was born, blah, blah, blah. God says, hey, get up. It's going to get better. Come on. You get This one, he says, okay. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. He had led, not delivered. He had led. Samson's life has been portrayed as heroic. It's incredibly tragic. He's definitely not an Im- a role model to emulate. Uh, what he is is the last of a failed system of judges that got progressively worse. And the end is Samson. And the end is failure. And it's self-centeredness. And it's uh, a complete neglect of his calling. And yet, despite that, God's will still gets accomplished. And the deliverance against the Philistine does begin to happen. Because after this, the next judge is going to be Samuel in the next book, or two books later. And Samuel, who's going to anoint the first king, who is going to rout the Philistines. And then the second king, David, who's going to crush the Philistines. So God's deliverance begins to happen. But it won't happen. It didn't happen in Samson's life. And there's still a long way to go. And this is the end of the judges in the book of Judges. The next chapters that we're going to pick up next week and hopefully get through before the end of the year is a series of events that take place throughout the time of the book of Judges. And they're going to give us, we've seen the people who've been in the Judges, the, 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 the personalities. Now we're going to get a sense of the climate of the overall country. And we're going to see just how far from the time of Joshua when they were unified and successful, just how far they've fallen. And it's believe it or not, only going to get worse <laughs> before it gets better. It doesn't get better in Judges. Judges is the dark days of Israel, and that's why that's what this study is called. But we are five minutes over, so we got to go. Get out of here. Take some food. Have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week.